we turn now to Exodus chapter 16. And we are in the middle, in a way, of what is this incident of them coming out of the promised land, or excuse me, out of the the land of bondage, and they're heading to the promised land eventually. But they find out that their road to get to the promised land, despite the great deliverance they had in the past, it's not so easy. And actually, we find out that part of what is not easy about it is intentional. That is, God makes it for them not easy. We read in verse 4 of chapter 16, it says this, they're crying for because they're hungry, and he says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. You're going to go gather a day's portion, but it says, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What's going on in Israel is a test for them. And in that way, too, a test for us as we use the mirror of God's word to expose our own heart. But when I mention test, what is your reaction to that word, you're going to have a test today? That is when I came into school and would sit down in class and I'd hear that from my teachers or professor. That was usually time for cardiac arrest shock. Uh, Too often, this is not what I encourage young people to do, don't follow my lead on this, especially through high school, but when I heard it's a test today, usually it was, I didn't study and I didn't know (laughs) that it was going to be a test today, so then I'm stricken with fear. But when you hear about tests, what, what comes to your mind? Maybe, too, it's uh, you have tests from the doctor. It's like, oh, no, I'm going to see the doctor. Another test today. I don't want to take another blood test. Many fear test day or exam week. Now, why is that? I think there could be several reasons, but I suppose chief among them is that because with the test comes this, we don't want to get exposed. Uh, We don't want to face the music that maybe we don't really measure up. Uh, that I didn't study, I, I, can't, I can't cut it in this course, that I don't really understand or know the material, or maybe with the doctor it's the test to figure out, oh no, I, I am out of shape, oh no, I, I do need to go on a diet, oh no, I, yeah, I am overweight. We don't want to hear that, we just want to live in the bliss of our ignorance that we measure up. And so we don't want to take the test. Well, where would we be without tests then? We'd be in the dark, wouldn't we? You don't know what you don't know. And without that blood test, you might not ever figure out that there is something really wrong with you until it's too late. So we're thankful for tests. Without, a, without that calculus exam, you might not figure out, wow, I am not good at math, and I need to find a different study course or career. Without an exam, you don't know where to grow. You don't know where you're weak and you need strengthening. And maybe that preface makes you feel a little bit better when you hear about, like we do in this text, God tests His people. But He doesn't do it to expose you or to try and fail you. He doesn't do it, though maybe some of your professors did, to try and trick you. He's testing you to help you. To expose maybe your weakness of faith, but to also give you the answer that He is the answer. And you can trust him more. So understand, as we've been studying through Exodus, we've seen this. God exposes the character of our faith, and he does it through tests and trials. I don't know what you came in with this morning, but many of us, one way or another, we're coming in with some test, some trial upon us. And he's trying to expose our faith, but also at the same time strengthen it. So the word is for now, learn the true character of faith. 
Learn the character of true faith, what it's like. We're going to see three aspects of that in this text. Look, figure out this morning what it means to depend upon God. That's what we're going to see. God exposes the character of our faith through testing and trials. And so learn now the character of true faith, what it looks like to depend upon God. And we see that take place here in three facets as we look at Israel. And the first is this. We learn about faith. True faith relies on God's provision for today. True faith relies on God's daily provision. True faith figures out the thing you need most of all is not even your most basic needs met. The thing you need most of all is actually God. Let's see this uncover in this text. Because what we find, again, to pick up where we are with Israel, we've been following them as their faith now is being tested and tried, which maybe sounds a little bit surprising because they were under a big test, right? For a long time, for 400 years, they were being oppressed in Israel, they, or excuse me, in Egypt. They were being oppressed by the Egyptians. And that was a hard time, the absolute test of their faith. And then they got to see an incredible deliverance. God splitting the Red Sea, destroying the Egyptian army, God bringing all these plagues upon Egypt. They saw the work of God. And I think how many of us would want to join them in seeing those things to say, yeah, God, you're incredible. God's on our side. Look at all he's doing. He's even delivering us. And you might then expect, well, now with God's with us, things are going to get easier. Well, what they find out is that life actually is still quite challenging, just in new ways. It's quite challenging, but just in new ways. And What might surprise us is that part of those difficulties are, again, they're intentional. They're not by accident. God puts them there for a good purpose. And we see here it's to test their faith. And right from the beginning, as they go into these tests, their trust in God wavers, right? First off, they're marching out of Egypt, but then they're getting really thirsty, so they're saying, God, give us something to drink, and he takes them to a lake, but then they find out, well, this water is only bitter, they can't drink it, and so what do they do? They complain and grumble against God. That was the end of chapter 15. And then as we turn to chapter 16, we see, well, they're no longer thirsty, but here's the problem now, they're hungry. They've run out of the food that they took with them, those unleavened cakes, and now they claim to be dying of hunger. What are they doing again? We saw it two weeks ago. They're grumbling, they're complaining against God. But here's the key. Here's what they need to learn. Here's what we need to learn this morning. Here's the true test of faith. Can they discover that, can we discover that our life this day, today, each and every day rests wholly upon God alone? Far more than you need water, far more than you need food, far more than you need anything else, you need Him. That's what this text is teaching us. And we see it, it stands out in this text through this, you might say, this look, this prism of provision. That's the theme. We see God providing in such astonishing ways, and He provides so supernaturally in ways that can only go back to God, in ways that only God can provide that they might trust Him. So, for example, as it opens, remember, they were grumbling about, they, they said, if you recall, looking back to verse 3, Uh, They wanted to go back to Egypt, and what did they have in Egypt? They had, we sat by meat pots, and we ate bread to the full. Never mind we were enslaved and beaten, but boy, if I could have those meat pots back and have a couple loaves of bread, that would be great. 
Well, God says, listen, despite your complaining, I'm going to give you exactly what you want, even what you need. I'm going to give you the meat, and we see that come in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. That's the meat they're going to have. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. So they might be looking around saying, ah, we got the meat, but where's the bread? You know, where's the Texas Roadhouse oven pumping out all of those rolls? Anybody ready for lunch? Well, perhaps it's in this dew, this unexplained new dew around. Look at verses 14 and 15. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord, here it is, has given you to eat. The Lord has given you this to eat. Now this just underscores, this is all coming from God. And that means they don't understand it because it comes from Him. It's not from anything they've experienced before. And it began with this strange dew that then disappears and then leaves this white flaky stuff all around the camp. And they turn to one another and they ask, what is it? I don't know what this stuff is. I've never seen it before. What is it? In the Hebrew, that sounds like manhu, which is where they'll eventually name it manna because they don't know what it is. It is the whatchamacallit. What is this stuff? It's the food God is giving you miraculously. Again, verse 15. It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This whatchamacallit is God's supernatural divine gift of your sustenance every day and will be for the next 40 years. This is not a food they could cultivate. It's not a food they understood. That's why they named it, what is it? It's entirely from God apart from them. And so do you know what that means then? That means they're going to have to trust God for it entirely. They don't understand it. And that's a picture of faith, isn't it? You don't understand. You don't know how this is going to work out. But here's what God has said. And are you going to go by what you can figure out and what you think is going to work out? Or are you going to trust what God has said and do it his way? That's what's before us. That's what faith looks like. Do you understand what he's told you? Do you know how it's going to work? I might not, but I'm going to follow him anyway because I trust him more than I trust my own understanding. Maybe you don't understand when you hear a command from God, I don't know how that's going to go better for me, God, to do it your way. I don't know how you're going to provide for me in this way that you have described. I don't know how that's going to sustain me or satisfy me, God, the way you have described, but I'm going to lean on not what I feel, but what you have said. That's faith. I'm not going to lean on what I can see and figure out. I'm going to lean on what you have said. That is faith. Every act of obedience is that. It's really a step of faith to say, God knows better than I do. And it shows in this food that comes from God because it comes from nowhere else. Also, it shows in the supernatural character of this food because it is the perfect provision. That is in the perfect amount. Look at this. This is supernatural. So they're commanded to go out and pick up all of this, whatever it is, this manna. And look what happens as they do. Look at verse 17. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. 
This is curious. No matter how much you went out there and labored, perhaps some greedily, you know, they've been hungry, they're storing up extra. No matter how much you grabbed, you come back to the camp and you saw the guy that was hardly grabbing anything, and you compare your baskets, you got the same amount in there. One omer. Thank you, Moses. He tells us what an omer is, in case you were curious, in the end of verse 36. Oh, by the way, an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Again, thank you, Moses. I don't know what that is. What is an omer? It's probably about two, fa- two pounds of food per day, which is an astonishing miracle, right? We're in a camp of some two million plus people, and everybody's getting new day, fresh day, two pounds of food per person. It's astonishing. But here, the point is, the supernatural aspect of this, not only does it come as a gift supernaturally, but no matter how much you get or how much little you grab, you get exactly what you need. This is supernatural. This is bread sent from heaven that perfectly satisfies and fills their bellies. This is not from them. It's not something they could understand. It's from God. It's a miracle. Something else underscores how special and different this bread is, and this is really what we're getting to, is that it's a daily bread. It's only good for one day. The expiration date is the very day of that day. Right, You go to the store, and you go find a loaf of bread, and you pull it off, and you're like, it says March 5th is when it expires, and so then I go digging around for other ones. I'm looking for the one that has like two weeks out or something like this. No, they all have the same date, and they're all going to expire. you got to take just your day's bread. Look at verse 19. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till morning. So this is a little different than hopefully your experience at the store. Okay. The collection of manna, it's only good for one day. And so the word is, you got to eat it up. No leftovers. Parents, you can use this at the dinner table. Nevertheless, some don't listen. There's a word from God about what they should do, but some don't trust God with this, and so they're not going to follow through. Either some... They want to save for a snack, you know, later in the night. Or more likely, I think what's going on, someone are wanting to ration out the manna, right? What happened today? That was pretty wild. That was pretty cool, God. But are you going to do that tomorrow? I've never seen this stuff before. So I'm going to eat half of it, and then I'll save half for tomorrow. And then hopefully we'll see what happens the day after that. That seems reasonable. That seems wise even, maybe. But... Here's what it is. It shows that they were not ready to trust God. And they're going to regret that. That is, leaving some left over for the next day. Look at verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. I think I'd be angry too. This is nasty stuff going on. When all of you have left food left over and left it out, and it reeks horribly, yeah, I'd be a little upset. And the way it's put in the Hebrew, one day it's delicious, and the next day you go back to that bag of bread you pulled out, and it's worming with worms, is the Hebrew. Gross. Why? So what's the point of this, though? Why does God do it that way? Again, this is the astonishing thing. He gave that manna supernaturally, and it seems like he supernaturally has it expire within one day. Why does he do it like that? He's teaching them, isn't he? What's he teaching them? Look at verse 21. 
Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. He was giving them new food each day, each and every day, but only for that day. What does that mean? You're going to have to trust him for tomorrow. And you're not going to trust him by looking back to the leftovers you have in the fridge. You're going to have to trust him to say, God, I need you to deliver. It melted by late morning. You couldn't be, you know, going around snacking on it all day, picking up manna here and there, you know, as you might get hungry. You had to go out in the morning, collect what you got. You couldn't save any. You couldn't ration it out for tomorrow. You had to eat it up. You had to trust God to provide for tomorrow just as he did today. And that's the issue. It's an issue of trust. Will you trust God to provide? Can you rely upon him? And this was well illustrated in the story that came to mind that I came across a number of years ago. It was a pastor, and he, he tells the story of uh, adopting a couple kids from Russia. And so he and his wife went to Russia to go get the children and bring them into their home. Well, all to say is the children were in this Russian orphanage. They were not well cared for. They were not adequately fed. And they discovered this because once they brought their kids back home to their you know, affluent, comparatively uh, well-stored American dinner table, when they got back to home and put those kids in those high chairs, they found that these kids were hiding food in their high chairs. Why? Because that's how they had to survive in the orphanage. They didn't get enough food every day, so they had to, when they got food, they had to save it until the hunger pains were just unbearable. Until, and he adds this, he says, we knew the boys had acclimated to our home He says, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming, and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. Why? Because now they trusted us. They trusted that we cared for them, that we were going to feed them, that we had the food to feed them. These boys started to learn they could trust their parents every day to take care of them. But again, they only came to this realization that they could trust Because you see, that's what this is about. Why does God provide bread this way? Why does he give them food this way? Why does he do it with the manna and only every day and have it expire and all of this? What is this about the bread? Well, let me tell you, it's not really about the bread, is it? He gave the bread to be a teaching tool to expose in them, to teach them their life each day, your life, this moment, every breath depends upon God. That's what this is about. That's faith. A daily reliance upon God. Now, doesn't that fit nicely with our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember this? How did he teach us to pray? Do you remember? Of course you do. Father, give us this day what? Our daily bread. You know? His prayer that he teaches us to pray isn't, Oh, Father, make sure Costco's open today. So I can get all the bulk I need for the next three months. Oh, Father, give me a year's supply. That's what I'm usually praying. Give me a retirement fund. You know, that's not what he's asking. He says, give us this day our daily bread that I can be provided for today. Now, that's hard for us, especially as we focus just on bread, because most of us maybe have a Costco membership or Sam's or something, or certainly well-populated grocery stores, at least typically, at least when it's not covid 
what does it look like for us when we can just open our cupboard and we got it's chock full of food or go to our refrigerator? What does it mean for us to daily rely upon God for our needs? Well, let me tell you, it's two things. One, trust in God today means this first, knowing your life relies upon God and his word. Trusting God today means you know and you live by the fact that you need God and his word today. So what does that mean? Don't be preoccupied with all of the other stuff about this life. Your life does not consist in those things, Jesus says. It's not even in food and clothing, Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount. You can have all of those things and actually be very poor in faith toward God. Well, what are the things that you think you need? What do you think you need from God? Are you relying on things or relying on God? Well, let me ask you this. When you wake up in the morning and you turn around and those foot feet hit the floor, what is the first thing you're after? Saying, I need that. That's what I got to have. What is the thing you think you need every day to survive? I'm hungry. I need breakfast. For most of us, I need coffee. Bad. I need greetings and affections from my family. I, I need affirmation. I need, I need an attaboy from work today. Otherwise, I'm going to... I need some affirmation from my classmates. I need to uh, have likes on my social media, or I need to know this about myself. I need to know that my bosses think I'm doing a good job. What is that thing you think you need? If I don't get it, I'm going to die. Well, despite whatever you think that might be, or whatever it feels like, can I remind you what you actually need? That if you don't have this, you don't have life? God and his word. You can take all the rest away and you can still have life. And you can give me all the rest, but keep me from God and his word and you have no life whatsoever. His truth is the daily food we live by. And this is confirmed later on in the Old Testament. God's going to reveal what this whole manifest was about. He tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, what is this all about? Moses tells them. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. God humbled you, Israel, and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna. God was intentionally doing something. Why? He fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. So here it is. Why did I do the manna? So you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So you would learn to depend on his character, his word, every day. That's your life. Without it, you don't have life. And so what does that mean, again, still for us today? It means reorienting your daily focus where it should be. In the words of Jesus, later on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his word. This is where our focus must be. So that's first. Trust for today means knowing your life relies upon God and His Word. That's your focus. Everything else can be added unto you as we walk after Him. But number two, trust in God for today, if I can borrow again from the Sermon on the Mount, means not worrying about tomorrow. Trust in God for today means 
not worrying about tomorrow. Again, Jesus, I quoted it in a moment ago, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, all these things that you need will be added unto you. But then he adds this next, and this is Matthew 6, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, he says. Therefore, in light of that, don't be anxious about tomorrow, because tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is teaching us, this text is teaching us, a big part of trusting God for today is to not be anxious about tomorrow. Putting this together, I thought a pastor so helpfully put it like this. He said, just even this opening question, I think so helpful. He says, what is worry and anxiety except living out the future before it gets here? What is worry and anxiety, he writes, except living out the future before it gets here. What does that look like? He goes on. Going ahead to tomorrow, uh, three weeks from now, or four months from now, or ten years from now, and you start wondering, what are your kids going to be like? What is your marriage going to be like? If you'll ever get married, what's going to happen? How's this illness going to work out? And what's the diagnosis might, whatever it might say? All of that is trying, he says, to borrow mercies that God hasn't given you yet. He's given you grace, mercy for today. And he says, trust me for today and leave me the tomorrows and I'll give you the manna when you need it. And if you trust him, then what's the call for us? Trust him for today and leave the tomorrows to him. Use the spiritual food, the daily promises of his word today to get you through today and you can leave tomorrow's problems to him. Faith relies on his provision for today. But we're kind of already speaking about it, speaking about tomorrow. Faith rests in God's provision for tomorrow. And the operative word I want to highlight for you is the word rests. Because that's the focus as we turn to verses 22 through 30. Faith is able to rest in what God will do. It's interesting. He comes to this command about Sabbath, and it's all about rest. It's about taking a break. It's about not working, curiously enough. And then the thing is that I think is so curious, it's hard to do that. It's hard for us to take, to take a break. Why? Because it requires faith in someone else, not you. And here's the thing. We see it show here with Israel, because they're going along day by day, morning by morning, going out, working, and collecting the manna they need for the day. However, they notice on the sixth day, they've actually accumulated twice as much as they need, which again, I think instantly is a problem. You start collecting all of this manna, and then you come back to the camp, you're like, whoa, wait a minute, I have two omers of food. Okay, I didn't need that much, and I'm leaving a lot that's going to stink for tomorrow, right? This is a problem. Verse 22. So on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. But when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, so they think it's a problem. I got too much of this stuff, Moses. What are we supposed to do with it? In verse 5, earlier in the chapter, he already told them, I'm going to give you twice as much food on day six, right? But they didn't hear why that was. What are we supposed to do with this extra stuff before it stinks and teems with worms? Not good. Verse 23. So they go to Moses, and here's what Moses tells them. This is what the Lord has commanded. He's commanded it. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, 
a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So that means bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. The idea is prepare on day six for what you're going to eat on day seven, that rest day. And all that is left over, lay aside and keep it till morning. But Moses, if we do that, what's going to happen? It's going to stink. It's going to team with worms. We've been there, done that. And yet, amazingly, that's not what happens, right? Verse 24. And so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink. And there were no worms in it. Oh, this is fascinating. Why does it happen like this? Did did God give them special Ziploc bags and freezers? How can the manna that every day gets old and gross the next day, how can it last too? We know the answer. This is, not, this, is, this is not normal bread. This is not even wonder bread. This is the Lord's bread that he is supernaturally and specially given for this purpose such that as he can miraculously give it day by day and miraculously make it get spoiled the next day, he can miraculously to preserve it an extra day if he chooses to. It's in his hands. Now, why does he do it? This is more to the question. Again, it's supernatural. He miraculously gave the manna. Now he's supernaturally preserving the manna. Because what is he doing? He's teaching them to trust him. To trust him enough to at least one day just rest. Stop working. Trust me. Look at verse 25. Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath. That means rest to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall come and gather it, but on the seventh day, which is Sabbath, there will be none. Again, that's what Sabbath means. It's a rest. It's a cessation from work. It's a break. It's a holiday. It's a day off. A day to stop working, which means you're going to have to rest on someone else to provide for you. You have to rest on God's provision. And God's going to encourage them in this because he's not going to give them manna on day seven. Nevertheless, despite the extra provision on day six and all of the clear commands, don't go out and get that stuff. Gather twice as much on day six, our Saturday, or excuse me, our Friday, so they can have it for Saturday. Even still, some go out looking for food. They get up in the morning ready to work, verse 27. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. That seems like an honest honest mistake, doesn't it? I mean, you get in a pattern of things, you do this, you do that, and then, oh, yeah, I'm just going to get up and go get manna like I do every morning, like I go make coffee every morning. Honest mistake. And proof of it, uh, for probably many of us, if any of you, after church, maybe even agreed with fellow church members to go meet them at Chick-fil-A, on Sunday. It's not open. I've done this. And I've showed up and said, I'm an idiot. Right? Of course they're not open on Sunday. Easy mistake, though. Well, is it? Is it here? Is that what the Lord sees it? Oh, they just got up. They weren't thinking. Oh, he sees it differently. Look at verse 28. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? What did they're going out on the Sabbath, going to work, going to collect? What did that look like to God? It was a show of their lack of faith. 
It was a show of their disregard for his laws and commands. They don't trust him. They don't believe it's really him providing it. They don't think he's the one. And the astonishing thing is they won't obey his word, which is, again, it astonishes me in one sense because it seems like the easiest command to obey. Just don't do anything. And yet, we really struggle with this, don't we? But the very rest is the gift from the Lord. Look at verse 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let none of you go out of his place on the seventh day. But notice in verse 29, he's given you the rest. He's given you the Sabbath. In the same way he gave you the food, now he's giving you a break. Those are gifts, provisions from the Lord. He's giving you a rest to recharge your souls, but also to test their faith. Are they going to turn away from what they can do, they can collect, they can muster, and then rest entirely on what God must provide this day? That's the question to them. And surprisingly, perhaps, it's hard for us to do. And why is it so hard? Because we trust in ourselves. We rely upon ourselves. We're storing up for ourselves. And if you're wondering, well, is that really me? Because I grant we're not in this whole manna situation precisely. Well, do you ever feel stressed? Overworked? Are you ever very frustrated because you can't get your task list done every day? One brother put it like this. He said, one of the ways in which we demonstrate our trust in God is in our very ability to rest. We can rest because we're trusting God to provide. We know we don't have to do it. He goes, and goes on and says, let me turn that around. If you can't rest, if you're always busy with your work or your family or your ministry, it is because you're not trusting God. You're trying to secure your own future, create your own identity, provide your own justification. He goes on and says, you can make, you can make excuses. Oh, I'm so busy. My schedule's so full. I'm so important. I got all of this to do. But he goes on and notes, but that's all they are. They're just excuses. Excuses to justify your lack of faith, your lack of belief, your lack of prayer and dependence on him, your lack of looking to him because you're trusting in what you can do. So much so you hear the word rest, take a break, and you're like, no way. I ain't got time for that. Can you rest? Well, we must rest. Turn over with me. Look over at John chapter 6. So let's go to the New Testament. Jesus picks up on these themes here in John 6. A familiar event has just happened in the life and ministry of Jesus there in John chapter 6. We had seen where he had just fed the 5,000. This was an astonishing miracle, really patterned after Israel being fed by God in the wilderness. And as he has done this miraculous thing, feeding 5,000 plus people, everybody's now hunting for Jesus, not hunting to kill him. They, they want to be around him. And as the crowds then find him here later in the chapter, he has words for them. He actually confronts them a bit. Look at verse 26 of John 6. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus is saying, you've come around and you're, you're coming up to me. That's great. But all of you are here. You're not here because you saw signs that I'm the Messiah and going to be your Savior. You're around here because you want a free lunch. You've missed what this is all about. So instead, verse 27, Jesus bids them, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And this is interesting. Don't work for the food that's here today, gone tomorrow. You're always needing more. Don't work for that food. Don't set your focus on it. Actually, so the contrast is, instead, work hard for the food of eternal life, okay? Work hard to partake of that food that the Son of Man can only give. A little confused. They then ask him, verse 28, then they said to him, okay, so what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, before we turn to Jesus' answer, just notice in that question from verse 28, all of the doing, all of the working words that are there. What must we do, what must we be doing to do the works or doings of God? What works does God want us to do? What works does God require, Jesus? And here's this astonishing answer. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. Of course, that Jesus Christ What's the work of God? That you would trust Him. That you would actually refrain from working and trust in what He has worked. Again, how counterintuitive this is to us. But actually, the way to work for eternal life is to not work, but believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him, that's in Christ. That's what faith is. You're not looking to yourself, your workings, your merits, your efforts, but to Christ's. Trusting that his cross work was enough for you. Because you understand, we talk about it all the time, but being saved by faith in Christ means being saved by no works of yours at all. The Apostle Paul sets up this contrast so well in Romans chapter 4 when he writes and says this. This is Romans 4 verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the one who does not work, but what does he do? He believes. And he believes that God will justify, declare righteous one who is ungodly. That's the one who's righteous before God. Now, how is that going to work? How could it be that we don't do anything, actually we stop doing, and we believe God's going to do something that seems impossible, that he'd look at ungodly people and call them righteous? How does that work? Well, the only way it works is because of one thing. And what is it? The cross, work of Christ on the cross. Jesus' work on the cross is the only answer to that. But that's where He worked and He took my sins. And for all those that trust in Him. That's where He did the work and died for my sins. Taking all the punishment of hell I deserve. That's where He worked and He rose from the dead. And is at the Father's right hand interceding for me. Why? Because I worked so hard? Because I went to Bible college? Spent all this money? Give to the church and missions? No. Why and how is He interceding for me? Because He worked for me. He alone saved me. 
And how do you receive such a gift of salvation? What must you do? Actually, you must agree to do nothing in one way. You are believing. You believe that your works could never make you right with God. You believe that you are indeed guilty before him, worthy of hell. And you believe that he did enough to make you right with God. That's the good news of the gospel. We're saved by faith alone in him. It's a gift. But now, kind of back to Israel, back to us. The funny thing is, though we love that message, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, it's all because of Christ. And yet, we have a hard time obeying that command that all you have to do is believe. We have a hard time trusting in him. And proof of that are these two telltale signs. Are you struggling with resting in Christ? Well, here's two proofs that you might be doing so. One is that you are starting to become arrogantly self-righteous. That's a sign you've stopped looking to Christ and you're looking to yourself. You start looking at other Christians and you start thinking, you know, I'm kind of better at Christianity than they are. I'm pretty good at this. I mean, I go to Grace Bible Church where we have long Bible-saturated sermons. I must be a better Christian. Similarly, you stop seeing your own sin. You know, you think of, yeah, we're talking about the cross, and I'm a sinner, sure. I can't even remember the last time I sinned. You become blind to your daily need for mercy. That's one side of it. On the other side, what does it look like when you stop looking to Christ and start looking to yourself? If it's not self-righteousness, you are then struggling with persistent, nagging guilt. That's probably many in this room. You feel like, I can never do enough. I can never get it right. And it's a curious thing, because unlike the, selfish, the self-righteous person who says, I can't even really remember the last time I sinned, the person struggling on the other side of it is like, I, I can't but remember my sin. And it haunts you, says you're guilty. You can't shake it. Though those two responses are polar opposites, they come from the same root, the same faith problem. That's looking to ourself and not to Christ, looking to our works and efforts to make us right with God instead of Him. When the gospel's invitation is stop and rest in what Christ has done, He is our Sabbath rest, He secures our tomorrows. He did all the work to save your soul, and he bids you, rest in me. So let's do that. Finally then, back to Exodus. Faith recalls God's provision from yesterday, verses 31 to 36. Faith recalls God's faithful provision from yesterday. And we see that here. We'll have to just, you know, glance at it. But God tells them, hey, I want you to keep some of this manna. And this manna I'm going to tell you to keep, it's not going to keep for one day or two days. It's going to keep for generations. Why? Because I want the generations to remember how I fed you in the wilderness. Day after day, year after year, miraculously for 40 years. I want you to see that manna kept among you and remember and look. Look at verse 32. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So that generations after generations will look and remember. 
Why is it so important to remember? It's so key because when you go back and remember how faithful he's been, you then know what he's going to do about his promises to the future. What's he going to do? He's going to be faithful. He always is. He never fails. That's why it's important, I think, in our own life to even set up those kind of memorials, our jars of manna, so to speak, to remember how he's been faithful. I recall through my years in seminary, what they would do at the end of the year, all of the seniors would come up and they would give testimony about how the Lord worked in seminary. And time and time again, man after man shared, basically, I had no money for school, I didn't have money to feed my family, and then I go to my mailbox at the, at the seminary building, and anonymously, there's the exact amount of money we needed. And we are testimony, testimony after that. Well, what are the testimonies you have? And maybe you need to go back and like, think and remember, but write them down. And then share them with your brothers and sisters here. We need to recall God's faithfulness. Why? Because we need those reminders as we're walking through the trials right now, lest we forget. That's why God tells Israel here. Well, whatever memorials you're going to set up, know this, God in his wisdom, he set up one for the church to remember all the time. The cross. And that's what this table is all about, isn't it? It's remembering God's faithfulness. His faithfulness in the past. His faithfulness in his love and his promise to come for us, to come redeem us. And, but do you remember, we read that text from 1 Corinthians every month as we celebrate this table. Do you remember how it ends, though? It's all about remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? But it ends with a look to the future. Remember this? This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember his faithfulness. That's why we have hope. Let's do that now as we pray.